Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and today we're going to be having a wonderful conversation with the Dementia Whisperer. And we are live, so you can call in and join the conversation or ask questions at 323-870-4602. That is 323 323- Eight seven zero four six zero two. In the meantime, if you enjoyed that opening music, the song is called Clarion Call, and it's by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dore. And you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new, Alzheimer Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. And our goal is to raise all voices, big and small all around the world, from those diagnosed to those who care and serve them, researchers, advocates, and so much more. Now, before I introduce you to our guest, I always like to give a few shout-outs. So first and foremost, I have to shout-out to Dementia Map. If you haven't visited our new site, please check it out. There you will find 150 different categories that you can search Uh, There is an events calendar, which has many free um, uh, events that you can participate in. Most are virtual these days, um, as well as some uh, fee. So check that out. There's also a blog, a glossary, um, lots and lots of great information to help you engage and just learn about dementia. Um, On there, you'll find things like the Memory Cafe directory that has over a 1,000 memory cafes in all kinds of locations uh, throughout the U.S. and the world. Uh, So please check that out. They also break down what is virtual and what is uh, live and in person. You'll learn about Coral Health, who is still allowing people to download two of their music apps free, um, Music First and Coral Faith. Uh, you will be able to find out, oh, there's so many cool things like Saltbox TV and Zinnia TV. Um, the list just kind of goes on and on and on. We, uh, I also want to give a shout out to um, Brookdale Senior Living of North Oaks here in Minnesota on the last Wednesday of each month from 10 to 11 Central Time. We meet at the Shoreview Community Center. And we just have a caregiver support group, also Arthur's Memory Cafe. We still meet virtually, and anybody around the world is welcome to join us. That's on the second and fourth Wednesday at 1 o'clock, and that is a virtual meeting. Just reach out to me, and I can get you the link for that. Upcoming on, let's see, September 15th, Maple Hills Senior Living and Moments Hospice is uh, sponsoring an event from 8 to 9 a.m. 
That's at Maple Hill Senior Living. And uh, we're going to be talking about dementia around the world, perspectives, stigmas, uh, services, and movements. Uh, so feel free to, to join us on that. And um, this is a fairly new. I just learned about this a few months ago, so I've been doing a lot of shout-outs on it, but I think it's important. It's the Brain Donor Project. Um, this is, you know, where you can donate your brain, and it's free to do, which is nice because uh, many times it costs you about $1,000 to, to arrange that. And they need both healthy and diseased brains uh, for their studies. So please uh, contemplate um, participating in that. Last, I am going to shout out to uh, the conference Together for Dementia uh, 2021, which will be November 2nd. This is going to be a virtual con uh, conference that is um, coordinated by the Dementia Research Charity Brace. And you can find information on alzheimerspeaks.com uh, regarding that. We're going to hear from the Foot Bar Walker, and we'll be right back with our guest. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The Footbar Walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the footbar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Footbar Walker. Well, welcome back, everyone. I am going to finally introduce you to our guest today. We are so thrilled to have Laura Wayman back with us. She is known as the Dementia Whisperer, uh, and she's been on our show before. She is a world-renowned dementia care expert and consultant, along with best-selling author of the book, A Loving Approach to Dementia Care, which is now in its third edition. And that was published by John Hopkins University. So welcome, Laura. I'm thrilled you can be back with us. Thank you, Lori. Um, I hope I didn't lose you. Um, I am uh, here in Arizona and so pleased to be on your show talking with you about the wonderful things that you do, the people that you work with, the people that you support. It's so important that we pay attention to this silent pandemic of any cause of dementia. So thank you so much for allowing me to be here today. Well, I'm thrilled to have you back with us. Um, why don't we start out first with, you know, what is your definition of dementia? Because I, I still, every time I go out in public, people go, what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? <laughs> and so there's still a, a lot of confusion out there for people. So why don't you clear that up for us to start with? Okay. So I'd like to give my 30-second dementia elevator speech. So when somebody asks me that question, um, what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? 
you need to understand what the word dementia means because dementia is not a disease. It's not an illness. It's not even a diagnosis. The word dementia is a list of symptoms. And if you really think about how a symptom appears, there has to be a cause for a symptom. So um, if you have the symptom of a cough, then the cause possibly could be that you have a cold, that you have a dry throat, that you have allergies. Something's causing you to have the symptom of a cough. So when someone has the symptoms of dementia, that means that something is in their brain, a cause, and it could be an illness, could be a disease, could be a trauma, could be a stroke, and it's causing you to lose normal brain function, most of the time that brain function is our learned brain function. And over time, we lose more and more of that if we have one of these causes and we are presenting to the world these dementia symptoms. And so it could be many different, thousands of different dementia symptoms. A lot of people confuse dementia with just memory loss. And it's not about memory loss. It's about the inability for your brain to function and process the memories because you've lost the ability do that if you have one of these causes. Now, the leading cause is the disease of Alzheimer's. And yet there's over a 100 different causes of loss of brain function and dementia symptoms. There's, there indeed is Alzheimer's, but there's Parkinson's. There's a, you could have a stroke and lose this brain function and present that to the world in these different dementia symptoms. Wonderful. That is really helpful. And then there, people have dementia symptoms, too, that can be curable, uh, like dehydration or vitamin deficiencies. And, you know, there, there's such a big realm out there. Um, I, I will just add that on top of Alzheimer's, most common probably people talk about are Lewy body, frontal temporal, and um, vascular dementia as well. But, again, those are just, I mean, that's just a handful out of over 100 and uh, I've had a hard time. I don't know if you've ever gotten um, a for sure number, but I've heard numbers all over the board, depending on who you talk to, because then there's mixed dementias for lucky souls to have more than one type of dementia as well. Have you have you heard of a scary. solid number? Um, oh, I just say over 100 plus because mm-hmm. there is so many, and we're discovering different causes as we learn more and more about the brain and and seeing different causes such as in different environmental causes, different toxins, different things that could be coming from the environment, different stresses on the brain could cause brain function loss. So there's all these different things that we're still learning. I, I, I like we were talking earlier, Lori. I learn something new every day. And, of course, in, out in the world, in the scientific world, in the medical world, they're continuing to learn as well. So we just are having to run to keep up. Exactly. And I love that you mentioned toxins and stressors. Um, you know, medications can be another one that can um, onset some of these symptoms as well. So, uh, as the saying goes, when you've met one person with dementia, you've met one. But I, I like to take it even broader than that and say when you've met one care partner, you've met one too because everything is constantly changing in terms of how we interact and, and how we react uh, to different situations. Now, one of the common questions people ask is, 
how do I stop my loved one? Or maybe you're a professional caring for uh, for a resident or a patient who is exhibiting, you know, challenging behaviors. And I hate that word behaviors, but that's what everyone says. So, you know, maybe it's wandering. Maybe it's just being really resistant to cares, um, refusal to bathe or eat, um, medications, uh, or or just um, inappropriate um displays out in public I know uh, can can really kind of push people over the edge how should people react when when someone with dementia is um, having something that doesn't quite fit into the box well first of all we need to understand that dementia um, often is permanent and progressive loss and these and I know I don't like the word behaviors either I'm right there with you but the dementia symptoms that we're talking about could be wandering, could be um, a symptom of um, being resistant to, to even accepting care. That is actually a dementia symptom. Um, and, and so a lot of times what I hear from family members is they're waiting for that person to have memory loss. And memory loss could be way down the road where they could be having these actual physical symptoms such as falling, um, loss of, of the brain function of balance and coordination. That is a typical dementia symptom that we see often long before we see the memory loss. So understanding that first, that this that these symptoms such as wandering, these these challenges, um, refusal to bathe or shower, refusing medical treatment, that is happening because they have a neuro, this neurological damage, this cognitive loss of how to process all of this information so they resist it. And that in itself are so, um, so many challenges. And how do we handle that? Because, because the loss is permanent, we can't give it back to them. We can't reteach them how to process this information. So they will continue to exhibit these, these um, challenges, these dementia symptoms. And um, like you said, uh, people call this behaviors, but it's really them exhibiting this loss in the way that they are trying to process and cope with and manage what's happening to them. And so we can't give it back to them, so therefore we can't stop it from happening. What we have to do is we have to learn to manage it. And the way that we manage it is have strategies and communication and care approaches that get into their world, allow them to exhibit these dementia symptoms instead of trying to stop it, fix it, or change it, and yet still manage it to keep them safe, and feeling loved and secure. We, it, I love what I saw, what I recently posted is you can't stop the wave, so you have to learn to surf. So that's what becoming dementia aware is. We can't stop this loss. We can't stop these dementia symptoms from happening, and everybody's different. They have different symptoms because they have different loss. So we have to get into their world and allow and accept and then learn to better manage it for them. You know, it's it's interesting because people do get really frustrated. And like you said, um, memory loss is just a portion of this. And so often I see people trying to um, logic with somebody. And, and that process 
isn't always there. And so what's logical to you and I isn't necessarily to a person with dementia. They're not connecting the dots in the same way. Um, when it comes to the word behavior, it's kind of, to me, like caregiver. I, I don't like the word caregiver because I think it sets up loss and feeling alone. I like care partner, care companion. And with behaviors, I like to try to get people to think of it as reaction signals and clues. And I only wish that people would put on their little investigative hats for dementia as much as they will for murder mysteries, you know, where they just want to get to the bottom of it and they're trying to sort it out because really all of these, you know, reaction signals, clues, behaviors, whatever you want to call them is the person telling us something's off and this is how I perceive it. And I need your help to kind of get me calm and, um, and and to help me find a resolve with that. And, and I know for myself, I, I, I uh, struggled with that a long time, and Tipa Snow back in the day uh, helped me with my own mom, who was really struggling, taking a shower. And she um, kind of put this beam of light on looking at things different. And I, always, I thought I had, but she made me go deeper. And with my mom, I said, you know, she always liked the water. She didn't mind, you know, doing her grooming. That was never an issue. And now I said she keeps um, – she acts like the water hurts her. And Tipa just looked at me and smiled. And she says, it does. And I said, what? Absolutely. And she said, well, you no. know, as we age, we lose our fat pads. And I'm like, well, my mom's a big woman. She says, it has no, nothing to do with how heavy somebody is. The, you know, the nerves get closer to the skin. The water pressure hurts. And it's scary because it just comes on. And that was really the door opening for me to really really, truly um, helped me look at things differently and not look at it like, oh, she's just being obstinate. She, or she, or what a lot of families say is they're just doing this to push my buttons, you know, and it, it has nothing to do with us at all. Um, it has to do with their comfort level. And it's learning how to process that information that we receive on a regular basis that under normal circumstances, we've learned to process on autopilot. I went to a, because um, I, I read and uh, voraciously, and I, I just trying to understand this more and more. I went to a very interesting seminar when I was a board member, uh, a wonderful um, organization called The Touch of Understanding. And I wanted to hear from someone who had a severe spinal injury how their brain was processing this information that they no longer um, had the same, uh, what we would call normal messaging anymore because of this injury. This particular gentleman was talking about the fact that he, his brain connection with the nerves was still there, but it was very mixed up. His brain was chattering information because it couldn't get the real information any longer from the neural pathways. And so he showed us that um, his nerves sent very different um, messages when he took a glass of cold water and poured it on his legs that were, were paralyzed, did not have that connection anymore. And he said it felt to him, you could see that he was in pain, it felt to him like it was very hot water because his brain could not um, really imagine what was really happening. And so he was in pain with the cold water, feeling like it was hot. 
So I began to understand that when someone has dementia, this loss of brain function, they also have the loss of ability to process in a normal way. And so, therefore, when that hot water hits them, that warm water, that cold water, their brain is getting a different message. That's why it's almost painful to them because their nerves are no longer receiving a normal pathway of messages. So, yes, you're, um, people are absolutely right in saying it is painful. I have seen this be so painful. No matter how many times we ask them, is this the right temperature, we're asking them to process information that they're, they no longer have that ability neurologically or cognitively to process. It's gone. What they've learned over their lifetime of how to process this information is completely gone. Yeah. Well, and I loved I loved your um, phrase of care approaches, and I'll use the example of the shower again. So for me, it, it, you know, it was learning that not only did the the water pressure hurt, and we needed to change to rain shower heads because that was lighter, but instead of um, starting from the top down, starting from the feet below, having them comfortable seeing what's going on, takes a lot of the scariness out because. They can, you know, startle real easily. And none of us feel comfortable when we're startled. You know, we, we yell out and then it depends on, you know, our reaction to, to that yell or their reaction can compound things instead of calming things down when we don't understand. Like, just knock it off. It's just a shower. Come on. You know, if they hear that tone of voice, they can still take all of those things in and they can hear the emotion. Um, that we're projecting upon them. And then, you know, just kind of like other times when um, they might be in a, in a totally fine mood and then they, they um, mirror our attitude and then we yell at them for having the, the issue when they were fine before we walked into the room, you know, they were just mirroring stuff back. So it's really about, I think, us as care partners slowing down. Um, and like you said, looking at different care approaches as to, what can we do? Because, you know, even like with the shower thing, that was really a pretty simple fix, but it wasn't the routine that was normal. And so many people get stuck in their routines, I think. And and Harry Urban, who lives with dementia, said something so profound one time on our dementia chat. He, he said, Lori, he said, routines are great, but what care partners have to remember is whose routine is it? Because if we don't understand the routine, it's not going to work. You have to work with our routine and what makes us feel comfortable. And sometimes we're just not willing to bend the rules. And then we, we make a tough day for everybody versus if we would, you know, maybe put it aside, come back to it, um, do that care approach a little bit different. Um, you know, we could do it later in a, in a different fashion when we're in a different space. Um, do you do you see that too? Where where do you believe care partners have to just look at things different and and sometimes slow down to read some of those nonverbals because we're so busy wanting the words, the sentences to tell us what's what. Absolutely, because we're asking that person to think. So the way that I'd like to explain this best, Lori, that that helps people to understand what's happening is when we come to this world as an infant, we come with basic brain functions. And what we have to do is learn enhancements, learn different ways.
ways and different processes on how we can utilize that basic brain function and grow in that. We learn learned brain function that helps us, that enhances our basic brain function. For example, an infant comes to us with vision. They can see, but they have to learn to process what they're seeing and manage it and cope with it and utilize it. And they also have to learn how what they're seeing is making them feel. Because we're all attached to this, not just this physical being, but this emotional and social being that as we learn what we see, how does that make us feel? How does it make us feel when we can see mommy's face? How does it make us feel when we can see daddy's face? How does it make us feel when we can't see them? How does it, how does it make us feel when we see um, the outside when it's daytime and when we see outside when it's nighttime? All of these little tiny details that we learn to process what it is we're seeing, how it makes us feel, and how to use that information. We learn, we store, we access, we continue to process everything we're seeing in our lifetime. And we get better and better at learning what it means. Just the same thing with hearing. We come to this world with the ability to hear, but we have to learn what that means to us. Right now, our listeners are listening to my words. But if you mm-hmm. think about it, my words don't even come across the airwaves as words. They come across as, as um, these sound waves that your brain has to process and make sense of and learn how to put together and what it means to you. And then you're going to store that and you're going to use it. And every time you think about what I'm saying later, you're going to think about how does that make me feel and how can you use that? So it's all attached, all of these tiny, minute little details of what we're hearing, how we're moving. An infant comes to this world with the ability to move, but they have to learn the learned brain function of balance and coordination and use that and get better at it so that when you as an adult stand up out of a chair, you're accessing that learned brain function that you learned as a toddler how to balance, how to walk safely, but that's all stored and that's all accessed. And that is what we are as humans. We're using this learn brain function to just be in life. And that is exactly what is wrong from us when we have one of these causes of loss of brain function. It starts by taking away this learn brain function that we've depended on to enhance our basic brain function all of our life. And so we begin to struggle with managing all of this data that's coming at us, what we hear, what we see, how we move. And so basically the the simplest way to say this is our thinker begins to be more and more broken. So we receive information. We can't think about it in a normal way. We can't process it. So we can't use it like we did before. And what a horrific thing to happen to us. As individuals, this vital information that we're receiving, but we don't lose the emotions and feelings that we were born with or that are attached to that. So we, we experience anxiety and fear and loneliness and abandonment without even having the opportunity to figure out why we're feeling that way or to do anything about it. So what I say is our care approach begins to need to be thinking for that person as much as possible. 
Because the more we make them think, the more anxious they're going to be. So we need to be a step ahead to give them that support. It's just kinder, and it just helps them to feel more safe. That makes a, a ton, a ton of sense. And I loved what you said um, when you were talking about, you know, how we make them feel. I think so often that is overlooked. We're so focused uh-huh. on fixing what we perceive as the problem that we really don't understand how we're making someone feel. And like you said, when we make them feel more anxious, their their stress goes up, their symptoms you know, rise with that as well, their fear, the whole nine yards. And so it's really important for us to to focus on how we're making them feel. How are we how are we dealing with this situation so that we're not making it worse? And I think I think many times um we accidentally can make things worse by being in such a hurry to make things better, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so important that, and we don't mean to as, as good care partners, as good care providers, we don't mean to make them anxious, but the normal way that we communicate with a healthy brain will inevitably make that person who is having this kind of cognitive loss, it will make them anxious. For example, if I ask you a simple question, Lori, you have to think of an answer. You have to process the question, and you have to think of an answer. And that's good for you with a healthy brain because it stimulates your brain to think. And so it works really well when you and I are having a conversation. If I ask you a question, it autom- your brain automatically kicks into this mode of thinking of how to respond properly. But if you have this kind of loss, that so many of these causes of dementia symptoms will uh, put upon these folks um, and they will have these these, um, challenges with responding because they can't process the question in a way that they can come up comfortably with an answer, even if it's a common question that they could think about an answer in the past What that does is it just basically puts them on the spot, causes their brain to kind of lock up, and they begin to feel anxious. So when we turn our questions, positive, what I call positive action statements, we will get a much better care outcome, much more positive, when we start to practice this for them. Now, a lot of times, um, family members say, no, that's condescending if I don't ask mom a question. Um, it, and, and I need to provide her with dignity. But we're not going to provide her with dignity if our question is going to make her feel anxious. So mm-hmm. instead of saying, are you hungry? Would you like some lunch? How about if you just simply change it, which is very welcoming and very warm, Just change it to the, I love it when we have lunch together. I've prepared lunch. Come have lunch with me. There's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with saying that. That Your mom won't miss that you're asking a question because the question makes her anxious. It's okay. Well, and I think for our listeners, even to think about, you know, going out to a restaurant and, 
you know, you even just ask for, you know, what kind of salad dressings do you have? And there's 45 of them to choose from or, you know, or what kind of pop do you have? Whatever it might be. That gets overwhelming for a regular healthy brain. And for somebody with dementia, it's, it's just full overload. So phrasing things, you know, to one or two choices, if that is something that you, you feel that you still need to do, um, makes a huge difference as well, instead of bombarding them with so many, so many different choices. And I think we, we all take for granted that, you know, all of the choices we make during the day, but if we realized how anxious that could make somebody feel, and I always say, you know, think of a time when you didn't fit in in a in a group or an event or whatever where you were just uncomfortable and just you know just that uncomfortable feeling and how much work that takes to be in that space and a lot of times that's the space they're in 24 7 when when we're not adapting and helping them feel comfortable and confident and purposeful and you know part of and, and that's that's exhausting and so I think really taking that into account and, and understanding it, it's just, it's not going to be the way it once was. Like you said, this is a progressive disease. And as much as we'd all like to see that change, that's not where we're at right now. You know, and and, and also that behaviors can ebb and flow. Um, I, I hear that a lot. I'm sure you do too. Is Well, they, they did it yesterday just fine, <laughs> you know. What do you say? What do you say to someone who says that? Uh, have you ever been in in, uh, in a situation where your brain is just tired and you don't want to have to think? Oh well, yeah. Let's think about how. Let's think about how difficult it is for them to process this these millions of pieces of data with a broken thinker, and then um, you know they might wake up in the morning and. Their thinkers had a little bit of rest. They've been sleeping, and our brain does this wonderful um, cleansing when we're sleeping. And so they wake up, and they're able to think a little bit better. But then later in the day, and we see this with sundowning all the time, this, this um, uh, more challenges in the afternoon and evening for, for folks who have these kinds of cognitive loss, um, where their brain just is tired and, and it's stressed already with the disease process that's happening, with all of this data that they're constantly being um, having to access, uh, how to process it, you know, you're going to see that, that often they don't think as well in the afternoon, but it looked like they were doing so much better in the morning because their brain wasn't as tired. Or maybe they had a doctor's appointment, which is very stimulating to the brain. That's a lot to think about, to get ready, to go, to be in front of the doctor. They're trying so hard to um, mask their loss in, in, in that doctor. Their brain is really working hard. And then we bring them home and we, have, we see that care provider, that care partner sees that they're having a really hard time after that much stimulation, and they're not processing as well. But then they rest, and in the morning, it looks like they got better. It's not necessarily that they got the, that loss back. It's that they don't have as much stress, so they can access what they still have. Mm-hmm. Good advice. Good advice. Um, and, I, and I love your um 
your phrase of the broken thinker too. It just seems a little lighter. Um, and, uh, you know, cause this is a heavy topic, you know, for people to, to understand and go with, um, Laura, one of the things I wanted to ask you was how the heck did you get the name dementia whisperer? How did that come about? <laughs> well, um, I was, Beginning to really work with families and recognizing myself that I can't go in and stop and fix and change what's happening, but I can show them different ways to manage it that are more successful for all parties. And so I was sitting watching, and, and please don't, and don't anybody listening think that I am any, in any way comparing your loved one or your client or your resident with a animal such as a dog. But I was watching the dement- I was watching the dog whisperer, and at the very beginning, he says he doesn't change the dog's behavior. He goes in and he teaches the um, the owner how to manage it. And so I thought, and so my husband turned to me and said, "That's what you do." And I went, "Oh my gosh, I'm the dementia whisperer," and it stuck. <laughs> I so, really. Um, <laughs> It's kind of a humorous thing, um, and and I I'm I'm not thinking that I'm in any way comparing myself to a dog trainer, but it was just the principle of knowing that all I can do is is help that care provider, and I wish I had a magic pill. I wish I had a resource that I could send these folks to that that would fix this. But until we have that, Lori, the only thing we can do is learn together how to be that dementia aware safety net and provide them with more opportunities to feel loved and safe and and comforted and supported and and just really helping them along this journey, you know, where and giving them the, the kind of rest stop and resources that they need all along the way. Okay, great. Thank you. Now you have you have a book, you have programs and training. Why don't we talk about those a little bit? Let's talk first about your book, A Loving Approach um, to Dementia Care, which I love the title, you know, Making Meaningful Connections uh, While Caregiving. I, I think that's what most people want. And uh, and yet they feel short on patience, um, you know, high on their to-do list and just wonder how, how do I make that work? So what can people expect in that book? What can they expect to find? Change your perception of what dementia is, like we're talking about today. And it's also going to put you in a place of acceptance and better expectations of an outcome. Because we often, when I have um, family members come to me, they're saying what we were, we're talking about to me. They're saying, can you stop dad from blah, blah, blah. And I always say, no, I probably can't stop it, but I can help you manage it. And then I, I need to get raise their dementia awareness. And that's what the book is so helpful with, is that it, it really changes your perception. It um, gives you real-life lessons that I've learned about what works and what doesn't work. And gives you that realization that you're the only one that can uh, that that can make this difference in the relationship, and that you have to go along with them. You have to get in the boat of dementia with them, 
and that you can't grow against the current, that you have to go with the flow, you have to be fluid and flexible, you have to join their feelings, and you learn a very different way of engagement and connection that is much more successful that will provide you with relief. But I also want you to understand that I, I make it easier, but this is such a hard journey anyway. I don't take away all of that with you, but I also want you to know how important it is to take care of yourself, to really go into training because this is a dementia care marathon and to learn these different strategies and to make sure that all along the way you're taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. That That is uh, wonderful. And I love that you mentioned being fluid and flexible. And, and I think spontaneity sometimes is overlooked. Um, and underappreciated what a brilliance that can bring when we let go of control. And, you know, we really, we don't have a whole lot of control over dementia. You know, we can guide it and, and we can kind of massage it, but, you know, it has a mind of its own. And so learning to be fluid and flexible and, and spontaneous, I think is is extremely important. And, you know, for me on my own journey with my mom, it was those moments that were really huge teaching moments to me. And may, and, and each time I learned something new by following that path, it made it so much easier. I wasn't so scared um, to let go of this perceived control that I had. But I, I was shocked at what I, what I learned in those moments um, that I could reapply and that I could share with others um, on that. Um, now, you know, one question I didn't ask you now that I think about it, and I always ask everybody in the very beginning is, you know, have you been personally touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends? Oh, absolutely. Let me tell you really quickly the story of Peggy. Um, many, many years ago when Peggy was only 17, she was invited to attend her little local square dance. She walked into that square dance hall that night, even though she was a very shy girl. She took one look at the square dance caller, a young man who happened to be calling that dance that night. She turned to her girlfriend and said, oh, my goodness, that man is so handsome, I'm going to marry that man. And she <laughs> walked up and introduced herself. And she was being talking with him and laughing with him. And before the end of that square dance that night, that young man, his name was Jack, asked Peggy out on their first date. And they dated over the next year, fell madly in love, and so when on the very day that Peggy turned 18, they eloped. Now, they had a long, wonderful, magical life together, and they raised five healthy children of their own. But not only that, Peggy was a true caregiver at heart. She loved caring for babies and children. So she had also begun to invite foster children into her home, and many of the foster children that she helped raise had severe physical challenges, but she would always figure out a way to take care of them. She raised over 20 foster children alongside of her own five healthy children, and and as they became adults and began to leave the home, Jack and Peggy began to plan for their retirement. When that last adult child left the home, Jack and Peggy bought an RV and began to travel all over because that had always been their dream. And they did that successfully, but unfortunately, they were older, and so health issues began to raise their ugly head, especially the fact that Jack began to show signs of dementia. 
So Peggy had seen some of her friends caring for their family or their siblings or or other neighbors that had some dementia symptoms, and so she knew it was a difficult road. So when his dementia symptoms really began to really show so much that she was beginning to be concerned, she made the decision to sell their little RV. They bought a little house in a small town next to some friends of theirs so that she could step back in the role of being that caregiver, this time to her beloved spouse. Now, she stepped into that really knowing it was going to be difficult, but she she had a caregiver's heart. And at first she was doing okay. She was managing it, but she was just so frustrated because his symptoms got worse and worse. He began to wander. She had to keep her eyes on him at all times. He was up and down at night. He wasn't sleeping. And sometimes he didn't even process that she was his beloved bride of so many years, and he would resist her care, become quite anxious, believing she was even a stranger in their own home. And she was beginning to be exhausted. She reached out to her family on the phone, began to talk about these challenges, and they said, why don't you get some help in there? And she said, you know, there isn't much help there. I don't find very many people who really understand this, even the medical community, and there's no one here that can really help me. And so the family would offer to come help her, and she'd say, no, 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 I'm a caregiver at heart. You live your life. I can deal with this. Then one night, Lori, Zach and Peggy were home alone, and she had been talking about how serious these dementia symptoms were becoming and how difficult she was uh, of a time she was having. And this one night when they were home alone, as she sat down to have dinner with Zach, Peggy suffered a massive heart attack. Now, Jack's dementia was so far advanced, he didn't recognize that it was an emergency. In his confusion, he wandered outside and said something to a passing neighbor that was very confusing and disorienting. He said, Peggy's very tired. She's sleeping on the floor. So by the time help arrived, it was too late. Peggy Mm. was gone. Lori, Peggy was my mother. Mm. That's how I found out the impact of caring for someone, especially if you are a same-age spouse, has on that caregiver. You know, 68% of the time, that caregiver gets sick and goes first, just like my mother, Yeah. because this is so overwhelming. And because we have not provided that dementia-aware safety net in all of our communities that needs to be there. And so my mission is to raise dementia awareness, to provide that kind of help and support to every single caregiver that needs us. Yep. It's so, it's so true. Um, you know, uh, my dad went before my mom as well. Um, he ended up with cancer. But I, I think that is something that people just choose to ignore. Uh, you know, it's like, well, that can't be because I, I have to be here because who else will do that? And I, I hear that over and over and over and yet it is, you know, it is just a, a critical, critical piece. And, you know, by training um, our communities, our, our, you know, and our medical professionals, everyone thinks the medical professionals are trained, but they're not um, in yeah. terms of dementia. Um, you know, organizations and businesses within our community, um, the first responders, the fire, the police, you know, everybody needs this as well as our, our neighbors and friends. We have to 
we have to turn the corner and make this a comfortable conversation because it is uh, it affects us all on multiple levels in so many different fashions, and it can it, you know it can come knocking on our door any day because it has no borders, it has no boundaries, it doesn't care who you are, how much money you make or don't make, where you live or how educated you are, uh, you know that none of those things are going to protect you necessarily from this disease and it's it's growing i i hear you know the numbers thrown out and people are shocked at you know how high they are and i said but what you have to understand is those are only the ones we know right there are so and many people, people that haven't gotten diagnosed because of the fear and the stigma so i'm sorry go ahead laura and no, i'm so sorry i, I cut you off Lori. I, I get so excited <laughs> when we're talking <laughs> <laughs> it's also the fact that um, we don't understand what dementia is. I have so many family members that say to me, well, I was waiting for them to forget me. It doesn't mm-hmm. have that much to do with the memory loss because 10 years early, they, earlier they will say, oh, yeah, 10 years ago I noticed that dad really, um, his balance was off. His, his gait had changed. He was, and he was always very coordinated and athlete. But he started just tripping and falling. He really, he started to be more clumsy. Well, that in itself is an early sign of this kind of loss, but it was ignored because people don't understand what dementia symptoms are and how they can present years and years before we ever see that what we call memory loss, which is really their inability to process information. So um, it's just that raising that dementia awareness. I have some wonderful stories in the book um, about uh, training uh, first responders and how then they went and immediately responded so differently to a couple that were challenged with some cognitive loss and and that this couple didn't even recognize that, that it was indeed dementia symptoms and how just that little bit of knowledge, spending four hours with first responders, gave them this different outlook so that they could manage the situation and help this couple immediately. Yep. Well, and and for those first responders to have resources to be able to pass on. Um, I know when we were doing um, training here in Roseville, they said one of the biggest problems they saw from, you know, the police, the EMT, the fire, was they might figure it out. But then if they brought somebody to the hospital, the process started all over again. And there wasn't a good communication system between everybody. And so, you know, that's something I think that really needs to change, too. And, uh, I, you know, I, I love when you said it. It's not, it's not just about, oh, I thought they'd forget me. You know, it can be math. It can be... Um, you know, sensitivity to sounds all of a sudden, uh, confusion in terms of, of placement of things, um, you know, depth perception. There's there's so many different facets and in, in, in overlays with things. And, um, you know, and, and a lot of times people get misdiagnosed or told it's depression or midlife crisis. You know, it's, it's a hard thing to pick up on because even the doctor's don't necessarily tell the families all what they should be looking for. And so, like you said, they're looking for, you know, um, the basics of memory. And it's so much deeper than that with um, executive function and so forth. So, 
Yeah, a lot, a lot of work. I mean, we've come a long ways in the last five years, um, but COVID's kind of pulled us back. Um, and, you know, we've we've got to get out there again. And I, I have noticed, I don't know if you've seen it where you are, but, you know, a lot of the dementia-friendly communities have pulled back during COVID because so many of them are run by volunteers that are already in the healthcare industry. And because of shortage of staff and COVID restrictions, you know, they haven't been able to volunteer and kind of carry on some of that work. And I know I hear from families all the time how much they miss that because they really liked being able to go to that source um, for education, um, for camaraderie, uh, for resources. And, you know, they're just not getting the the response that they would that they had prior um, to COVID. Are you seeing that um, in Arizona where you're at? I'm seeing that in Arizona and also in California where we had made huge strides in the Bay Area of of really dementia-aware communities and first responders and in Northern California where I've been working with first responders because now they've been pulled off a course, which is necessary. I, I'm certainly not um, throwing them under the bus, but they've been pulled off for the wildfires. And yep. so they have no time to think about being that support system in our communities right now. They're just mm-hmm. so overwhelmed. And then, of course, the whole medical community has been so overwhelmed with COVID. And yep. so we, we need to take care of these other things before we can even get back to a place where we can help provide that safety net that I'm talking about. And and it starts with education, but we have to have time to to give that education, to give that kind of support and change in perception. Exactly. And, you know, I think that there are some ways that families can help um, cities in terms of, of you know, having information prepared in case of uh, a situation would arise. So, you know, if someone's living with dementia in your household, you can call 911 non-emergency and register them within the 911 system saying this is so-and-so, they're diagnosed with dementia, you know, this is their nickname, here's their contact information, you know, I'm their primary, you know, caregiver, Um, these are things that are of interest to them, Um, you know, when we leave the house and go for a walk, they usually take a right instead of a left, you know, all those little things along with the description, you know, height and weight and and, um, things like that can make a massive difference. And then having that information at home in case of a crisis as well. And I, I think there's just so many families that don't even know that that's available. I know I didn't when I first heard about it. I'm like, well, why aren't we letting people know about this? <laughs> you know, because yeah, you um, know, that's where your amazing work comes in, Lori, where providing the dementia map and mm-hmm. providing resources that, just like um, you talked about, how often do you hear caregivers say, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where yeah. to go. Um, and and so that's why your work with the Dementia Map is so important. Mm, thank you. Thank you. I will throw in one other um, resource here. It's called the, uh, oh, gosh, what's it called now? The, the uh, God dang it. I want to say it's the Caregiver Call call Alert. No, it's Call Alert Center. And um, they're, they're on Dementia Map, actually. But people can actually go in and set up a subscription where they can put in all the basic contact information and description, height, weight, color of eyes, 
You can post a picture of them. You can have your vehicle there. I mean, we had one person in our memory cafe that um, her husband had stopped driving. And I want to say six, seven years later, one, one day he just picked up the keys and he left. And she never thought that was going to happen because he, he gave up the car all on his own. And here he was missing for hours. He, um, he ended up driving down the freeway the wrong way. The police actually turned him around and got him going. He ran out of gas. The construction workers gave him gas to keep going. There were so many different things that happened. And he just, you know, he had social skills and, you know, seemed like a, a nice elderly gentleman. And, you know, they were just trying to get him on, on his way back home, but he didn't know where home was. And he was hours away from home. And so the, the call alert center, you can, you know, if an emergency comes um, upon you, you can get a hold of the police, but you can have all that basic information ready to go. You can have a buddy list in there. So it is dispersed to your friends automatically. It's blasted out onto the phones and then the police will do, you know, their alerts as well. Um, but it's just one more thing that you can, you know, be prepared for. And I think it might be like $20 a year or something. But for that peace of mind, 20 bucks, what's 20 bucks? You know, it's a couple cups of coffee. Um, and uh, so there, there's a lot of different things that people can do together to be proactive. Hoping to God, it, you don't need it. Um, but they also, they do pets, they do grandkids, uh people traveling, you know, in other countries, and it's a, it's a pretty cool resource. But, um, Laura, this has just been a fascinating conversation. I appreciate where your heart is with all of this and how much you've accomplished. I would encourage people to go to Laura's site. It's laurawayman.com, and you can also email her at help at laurawayman.com. Um, Please listen to our future shows. And again, uh, you can always listen to our archive shows. We've been doing this since, what, 2011. So there's lots to listen and learn. And if you think you want to be a guest, just reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com. Again, Laura, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have a great week. Bye now. Bye. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.